We all have something in our lives that we feel great about. Maybe you're absolutely killing it in your career, meeting all your goals and feeling excited to go to work every day. Or maybe you have your personal finances on lockdown and you're on the right track to achieve financial freedom. But what about those areas in your life that could use some improvement? Think about your relationships, for example. Is your romantic partnership where you'd like it to be? What about your health? Think about a time when you felt unstoppable, in peak physical state, feeling the best you've ever felt. Do you feel like that now? What are the gaps in your life? I want to talk to you about the Wheel of Life, Tony's method of helping people identify where they need to improve. It's a way to take a good hard look at each facet of your life and rate its relative quality level so you can uncover which areas need more attention than others. When I took the Wheel of Life assessment test, I discovered exactly what it was in my life that was throwing things off balance. I basically got a helicopter view of my life that helped me see where I was excelling and where there was room for improvement. Because as Tony says, too many people are caught up with making a living and not designing their life. But to be able to design your life, you first have to create your map of where you are today. Take the Tony Robbins Wheel of Life assessment and get started on your journey to the extraordinary life you desire and deserve. Visit www.tonyrobbins.com slash mindthegap. That's M-I-N-D-T-H-E-G-A-P. Hey guys, I'm Annie York, Editorial Director for Robbins Research International. I want you to think for a moment about a memorable moment that you've had. Something that you remember so vividly, it's like it happened yesterday. Was it at work? At home? Who was there? I have this very distinct memory, for instance, of sitting in a tea shop on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The walls were painted the exact color of matcha green tea. There was a small, modest sign hanging outside with the name in all lowercase letters. It smelled like cinnamon and a little bit like cloves. This seemingly mundane everyday experience, though, has stuck in my mind for over a decade, and I have no idea why. Why do certain experiences influence us strongly? How can even the most fleeting moments impact us in a way that we remember them for years? And how can we intentionally create such experiences and moments to enrich and enhance our lives? In this episode of the Tony Robbins Podcast, we're talking with the best-selling author, speaker, and professor, Dan Heath. Dan is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports social entrepreneurs or businesses that are providing solutions to social, cultural, and environmental issues facing us today. Dan and his brother Chip, who's a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford's Business School, have written three New York Times bestsellers, Made to Stick, Decisive, and Switch, which have sold over 2 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 33 languages. Now, in their upcoming book, The Power of Moments, the Heaths are revealing the keys to what they call defining moments. That is, the most memorable and meaningful experiences in our lives. When we understand the principles that underlie such moments, we can then learn how to intentionally create the experiences that will further enrich and enhance both our personal and professional lives. Think about it. Businesses can learn how to create moments that make both customers and employees more loyal and more satisfied. Families can learn how to create more lasting memories together. And teachers could create lesson plans that students will remember for years and years. Life is a series of moments and experiences but life doesn't have to happen to you. You have more control than you think. And with the right tools and tactics, you can learn how to create the defining moments that will bring immense meaning to your life. All right, Dan, so welcome to the Tony Robbins podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Anna. Great. So I would love to start off by talking about what you mean by defining moments. And I'm going to explain a little bit about um, how, what Tony means. So in the book, you talk about moments as um, the moments that bring meaning to our lives, right? So the experiences that are both meaningful and memorable. When Tony talks about meaning and moments, it's usually in the context of emotion, right? So we tend to assign our own meaning to moments. We frame them in a certain way. And that defines the emotional tone of the experience. So we feel a certain way, you know? And since our memories are formed by emotion, they're anchored to certain states of feeling, images, sounds, and sensation, then that feeling becomes our memory. So it defines the moment. So Tony likes to say, you know, the meaning you attach to something produces the emotion of your life, and your emotion is your life. So Tony believes we have this power 
to create a higher quality of life by actively choosing to assign a different meaning to each moment. So he calls that reframing. So I'm just giving you a, a quick example. Um, so for instance, say, and this is interesting because a lot of people think this is right around the bend. So say there's this big market correction, right? So the economy tanks and you have an investment portfolio and it dips to like dangerously low levels. So you could see that as a sign to just pull out of stocks completely. So if you do that, you're going to lose a significant amount of value, right? And then you have this fear that you're not going to have a comfortable retirement. Or maybe you're angry at yourself because you didn't balance your portfolio in time. So what if you gave that moment an entirely different meaning? So you see it as an opportunity to buy at like a low price. Then you feel excited because you're anticipating that you're going to sell high later and make a profit. So now what's your emotion? It's like confidence, right? It's power. So there's a huge difference. So I wanted to introduce that because this is what Tony calls reframing. And it's when I was reading your book, this is exactly what I was thinking about. This is like, wow, Tony would completely have this reaction. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you talk about defining moments and I would love to kind of get your input on, you know, what you, when you set out to write the book and talk about moments, what did you mean by that? Well, in our definition, and by the way, thanks for that background. I think that's incredibly interesting and, and in a lot of ways compatible with what we wrote about. We're talking about defining moments as, as short experiences that are both memorable and meaningful. And so that might range from your wedding day to um, you know, a remarkable vacation that you had to one day in school when a teacher remarked on a talent you weren't even sure you had. And in the book, we talk about how we have the power to create moments like this, and that in fact, if you study people's positive defining moments, they tend to share a lot in common. And if we can recognize these elements that they share, it gives us this power that we didn't know we had to make more of them. And so the, the reason that's important is businesses can create moments that make customers and employees more loyal, more satisfied. and Families can make more memories together. Teachers can create lessons that students remember for years and years. And so we believe that moments are worth investing in. Great. So you mentioned that they have uh, elements, right? So every powerful moment has um, an element. It's almost like a science. There's a formula to it. Um, would you mind kind of walking us through what, you know, what those are? Yeah, so we identified four elements that are shared by positive defining moments. The first is elevation. And this is um, an experience that rises above the everyday. Uh, think about a, a wedding day or a birthday party or uh, a performance in a high school musical or a game in basketball. And, and what these experiences have in common is, is we feel a sense of, of being absorbed in the action. Like the, the circumstances are different. At a birthday party, there's, there's decorations and cake and music. Or in the case of a game, it's like I, our whole consciousness is absorbed in what's happening. That's a moment of elevation. The second are moments of insight. And these are abrupt realizations or, or transformations. You know, in an instant, we figure out that, you know, we can't take one more day of the job we're in. Or in an instant, we realize the person across the table from us is somebody that we're going to marry. Uh, the third element of defining moments is pride, and these are the moments when we're really at our best, you know, moments when we accomplish something we weren't sure we could, or moments when we're recognized by our peers, or moments where we stand up and show courage. And then finally, the fourth uh, element of defining moments is connection, and that can be connection between individuals, you know, a moment when you felt like your tie to someone else really deepened, or it can be a connection between groups. And what we find is that, that often what binds groups closely together is when they work on something really hard together. They struggle, they push, they endure, and something about fighting for something that's larger than the group really seems to cement their ties for life. Got it. So for each of these four elements, um, I'd love to go through them. And because I think everybody, as, as they were listening, was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I remember that one basketball game and oh, that moment of insight. I remember when I when I, you know, had a moment of realization that this career was not for me. Right. So uh, I'd love to go through them and sort of, you know, give an example of each one um, and kind of help people understand how they can leverage the knowledge that this 
this is a, a key component of creating a powerful moment um, and have people sort of, you know, get their minds thinking about how they can use that to create more. So for elevation, for instance, you said it's, you know, the times that you're completely immersed. And that sounded to me like it requires sort of a boost of your sensory pleasures, right? You said birthday party has music, it has delicious cake, it has, you know, the cra- people around you. So are there ways that um, a business, for instance, could create an environment like that um, that was unusual, that was beyond the everyday? Well, one of my favorite examples of this, there's a hotel in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle, and I stayed there last year. And, and la- I need to give you a little bit of background on this place. So first of all, Magic Castle sounds pretty dramatic, but, but I'll have to tell you, if you visited yeah. there, it, it is neither a castle nor does it look particularly magical. It looks like... <laughs> and it's not in Disneyland? <laughs> far from it. It looks like basically a two-story budget motel that's been painted bright yellow. The rooms are utterly unremarkable. They're clean and decent, but, but there's nothing to distinguish them. I, uh, I splurged on a balcony, a room with a balcony, and, and my balcony was like three feet off the ground. So like if somebody walked by in the parking lot, like I could slap them five as they, as they walked <laughs> by. Um, the lobby is, is completely unassuming. It looked vaguely like uh, the lobby of a, uh, a place you might get your, your car's oil changed. So this place is, is totally unremarkable to look at. And yet I want to share a fact with you that if you go look at TripAdvisor right now for the ranking of Los Angeles hotels, the, the uh, Magic Castle is number one on the strength of thousands of reviews, and it's ahead of the Four Seasons Beverly Hills, which no. I assure you is remarkable to look at. Wow. And so the question is, how in the world could this be true? So let me share a couple of things that uh, the Magic Castle does right, and, and linking them all is a concern for moments. So there's a, a cherry red phone by the pool. And if you pick up the phone and pull it to your ear, someone picks up and says, Popsicle hotline, may I help you? And they will... Like a real phone? A real like phone, Like a phone with yeah. an actual cord? A phone wow. with a cord. Okay. You pick it up. It's a little bit mysterious. The Popsicle hotline comes on. You can order up grape, cherry, or orange popsicles delivered to you poolside on a silver tray by someone wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. Wow. Uh, there is a snack menu where you can order up, you know, Fritos and cream soda and Sour Patch Kids all for free just for asking. Uh, and by the way, I saw some some kids doing this and it it was like, what wormhole in the universe have we slipped through where we can just walk up to a stranger and ask for free candy? Like they yeah. were in, on cloud nine. Yeah. There's a, a board game menu, a, a movie menu where you can check out things for free. You can drop off your laundry in the morning and get it by the end of the day washed and folded. There are magicians that do tricks in the lobby a couple times a week. And so when I paint that picture, this place looks very, very different. And now it becomes clear how a place like this, that's not much to look at, that's average in many ways, can be the number one hotel in L.A. And what this teaches us, I think, is something very, very important, that, that great experiences are often not nonstop great, you know, not end-to-end great, that they're often mostly forgettable and occasionally remarkable. And the Magic Castle is a great example of that. People will forgive subpar decorations. People will forgive subpar rooms and lobbies as long as you deliver some moments that really matter. And I think that that lesson that is true of hotels and certainly true of the hospitality industry is true for many aspects of life, that, that experience is often mostly forgettable and occasionally remarkable, but those remarkable moments don't plan themselves. Now, in the book, you mentioned this example, I remember, um, as an example of the peak end rule. And Disneyland is another example of that. Can you sort of explain that concept um, so people can get a better understanding of it? Yeah, there's some great research in psychology where psychologists are trying to understand why we remember what we do about our experiences. And, and, And one aspect of it is what we might think of as the Disney paradox. And I think anybody that's been to a theme park in the last few years can empathize with this, that if we actually studied your minute by minute happiness as you, you know, move around a theme park with your family, my guess is in the majority of those moments, you would actually be happier in that instant being on your couch at home, right? It's less humid there. It's less crowded. You can get a hot dog for less than 10 bucks. Uh, But in memory, 
it might be one of the highlights of our year. And the reason for that is when we remember our experiences, we're not remembering some kind of average of our minute-by-minute sensations. What we're remembering are snippets or scenes or specific moments. You know, our, our memories are not like queuing up a movie that we can watch end-to-end. They're more like a trailer of a movie, a collection of, of remarkable moments, whether positive or negative. Oh, and in pati- like a montage. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and psychologists say that there are two kinds of moments that we disproportionately remember uh, one is the peak of the experience. So in a positive experience, that's the most positive moment. And then the ending of the experience, it's called the peak end rule. And so this helps to explain the Disney paradox, how something that in the moment was not all that exceptional can become in memory one of the best parts of our year. And it's because we remember the peaks. We remember coming off of you know Space Mountain and the adrenaline high that that gave us. And we remember the time that Mickey came over and, and gave your little boy a hug. And, and those are the kinds of peaks that don't happen every day. So even if 60% of the time you might have been happier on the couch, you had some peak moments at Disney that everyday life doesn't deliver. And so that's what I mean when I say... You know, the occasionally remarkable moments are really worth investing in because that's what we cherish and that's what we remember. It's interesting because Disneyland in itself is a, is a clear, you know, it's differentiated from your everyday life, but you do have these kind of mini events, right? you going on a date or uh, a long brainstorming creative meeting at work or, you know, there's probably multiple examples of moments where you could create peaks, but people don't think of those that, you know, it's not Disneyland. So they don't think that within that time period, within that mini event, that there is an opportunity there. Well, one one example that I love is uh, Southwest Airlines. So if, if, if your listeners have flown Southwest, they know they often kind of have some fun with the flight safety announcement. Oh, yeah. They're amazing. Yep. I love them. And, and there's a bunch on YouTube of people, you know, telling jokes or rapping or, or whatever. Um, so this has actually become kind of part of the culture at Southwest. In fact, if, if, if you go to the Southwest headquarters, there's this wall where they have enshrined some of their favorite jokes that have been uh, produced by flight attendants over the years. Like, this is my all-time favorite. One flight attendant said, put, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Then on your child, if you're traveling with more than one child, start with the one with the greatest earning potential. <laughs> genius. So, I've heard something similar. They said if you're traveling with a child or someone who's just behaving like a child. Right. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so this is an example of, of, a, of a small peak moment. You know, over the course of your flight, a flight is typically pretty unremarkable, especially on Southwest, you know, where you're not going to have a cush seat, you're not going to have lavish food, you're going to get some peanuts and, and a water if you're lucky. Uh, it may be the peak moment of the flight. And so my brother and I started talking to the insights people at Southwest, the people who crunch all the customer data and try to figure out how to make customers happier. And, and we asked a, an interesting question, which is, what are funny flight safety announcements worth and that was something they'd never really thought about before, but they realized they had all the data to answer it. So we began to, to comb through that data. And the first thing I'll share is, you know, they have elaborate surveys that they take from passengers. And when they went through those surveys, they found that in 1.5% of the surveys, people mentioned the flight safety announcement. So just unprompted as something that they recalled as being, you know, good from the flight. And so we asked ourselves, okay, well, for the people who heard those flight safety announcements, did they spend more with Southwest afterwards? You know, did it make them more loyal? Were they more likely to seek out Southwest versus another airline? And in fact, the answer was yes. And then we further said, what if we just doubled the number of surveys? You know, it was kind of this hypothetical. If you could go from 1.5% of the surveys highlighting flight safety announcements to 3%, and you had the same corresponding ripple effects on people's loyalty, like what would that be worth? And the answer astonished all of us. The answer was it would be worth $140 million a year in incremental revenue by people more loyal to Southwest because of what? Because some flight attendants had some fun with something that is a federal mandate. And, And that's what I mean by we have the power to create these moments. And they need not be extravagant moments. They need not be dramatic moments. They're moments that are different from people's expectations. And Southwest has done a brilliant job of that. Wow. 
that's incredible. And, you know, what's interesting is they didn't set out with the outcome of revenue in mind. I mean, I don't know where it started. Maybe somebody, I don't know, on the executive team just had a sense of humor and said, hey, let's just let them do this. Or maybe it was more of an organic grassroots movement among crew. But it's so interesting that that was a positive outcome of something that was not, you know, strategically planned in a boardroom. That's a great point. And, and I think, you know, in, in Defense of Southwest, I think what, what they deserve credit for is giving employees enough rope that spontaneity is possible, you know, because in so many service businesses, it's like people, people have so little respect for their staff that they, they want to bureaucratize everything. You know, there's, there's a playbook and you get scored on how well you honor the playbook. And if you deviate from the playbook, if you wrap out the flight safety announcement, I, I suspect, you know, we've all flown an airline where if someone wrapped the flight safety announcement, they're probably fired the next day. You know? And so, <laughs> yep. um, so I think it is true that this was, this was an organic thing and not centrally planned. And it's also true that that, that is the result of a culture and, and uh, a set of leaders who, who were willing to allow that to happen. Sure. And culture, you know, you mentioned that, you they got incremental revenue from loyalty and customer loyalty is something that um tony always says you know one of the three main things you need to grow your business you need uh you know more clients you need to get more revenue from your clients and then you need to keep your clients for longer it's like lifetime value of your of your customer right and so it looks like that had a direct impact on loyalty from these higher levels of of customer satisfaction but what's interesting too is that I bet Southwest Airlines has a higher retention rate of its employees, which as any business owner knows, that's a huge way that you lose revenue over time is by losing your employees. And aviation, as we know, is a growing industry. There's a lot of competition and there's probably a lot of movement between airlines. But I don't know about you, but every Southwest Airline crew member and pilot that I've ever encountered, they're really happy there and they don't want to leave. Once you get a job at Southwest, you don't leave. So that's another, you know, benefit of how, running your business in that way. No question. And, and what we know from research in psychology is that two of the best motiva- motivators for people are autonomy and creativity. You know, being given a little bit of space to operate, that's autonomy, and being given the opportunity to kind of show some flair. And you can see both of those things at work with the flight safety announcements. I mean, there are many other aspects to the job, of course, but, but that's a good example of a healthy culture, one that, that honors employees. Um, I'll give you another small example. That I, I think this one's sort of fun just because of how small it is. There's this cafe chain called Pret-a-Manger, and you know they serve sandwiches and coffee and pastries and whatnot. And they uh, they studied you know the loyalty card business like you might have at your grocery store, or a coffee shop, or something where they track what you spend and you get you know twenty cents off a jar of pickles if you're a member that sort of thing. And they said you know is this really worth the effort? And and so they decided not to do the loyalty card thing and instead they created a policy where the uh, the people who work the counter are given like a weekly budget of free stuff to give away to whoever they want. So, you know, somebody comes up and, you know, they like your tie, they like your dress, and they say, that coffee's on me. And people started to notice this. It wasn't like an official policy announcement where they did a big marketing campaign around it. They just started doing it. And a lot of the customers who came frequently, it's like they would notice once every couple of months, they just got something for free. And for the customers, it's like this great high. Like you just, that is so rare for someone to just let you walk off of something for free that it really stuck with them. But, but back to the point, notice what this does for the employees. Right? Again, it's, it's letting them have some autonomy. It, it's not having Big Brother monitoring your every behavior and, and measuring what you do against a checklist. It's saying, hey, you know, you're, you're one of us. We trust you to, to have some fun with this. And, and you know, when you, uh, when you like the looks of somebody, give them that coffee for free. Give them that muffin for free. And it's a little thing that, that makes a big difference for both the customer and the employee. Yep. Uh, in the book, you refer to this as breaking the script, right? So letting employees have the creativity to surprise and delight customers. Um, and you had this great example of Joshi the giraffe. I was wondering if you could tell that story. Yeah, some of your listeners may remember this. This went viral a couple of years ago. So the story is there was this family with a little boy who stayed at a Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Florida 
And this little boy had this, this loyal uh, sleep buddy called Joshi. It was a stuffed giraffe. And uh, he'd been sleeping with Joshi every night. I mean, if you've got a kid, you probably can understand the bond that forms. Well, when they went home, they realized they forgot Joshi. And, and so the parents were in a panic, like, is our child ever going to sleep again? <laughs> and so uh, the dad, you know, I think parents can empathize that, that when you're trying to get your kids to bed, um, your, your attention quickly turns to lying to them. Uh, and so the dad said, you know, Joshy just decided to stay around. He needed a little more vacation, and, and the boy bought it. And so that, that bought the, the dad some time to get in touch with the Ritz-Carlton and see if they could find it. And when he called the Ritz-Carlton, he admitted, you know, this lie he told his son. And he said, is there any way you could, you could kind of cover for me and just, you know, take a photo of, of uh, Joshy in one of the lounge chairs by the pool so I can show my son, hey, he was really having a good time. And so the staffers kind of chuckled and they said, yeah, we'd do it. And a couple of days later, you know, Joshy shows up with an entire photo album of his stay at the Ritz. So not just that one photo he'd requested, but also Joshy uh, reclining on, on a lounge chair in the spa with cucumber slices over his eyes. Or, <laughs> or Joshy in the, the security control room, like adjusting the knobs and looking at the cameras. Or uh, Joshy making friends with a parrot at the hotel. And it was just like an extraordinary, almost magical thing to do. I mean, can you imagine like a... Uh, La Quinta uh, ever doing something yeah, like that. No. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the parents were just blown away. Obviously, the boy was over the moon, uh, but the parents were so impressed by what the staff had done and how over the top it was and how thoughtful it was that the dad wrote a blog post about it that went viral. And And so that's an example of what we call breaking the script, which is when we think about scripts, what we're saying is a lot of things in life operate according to really reliable rules. So, you know, you go order something at McDonald's, like that's a script. You know exactly how it's going to work. It works the same in every McDonald's in the world. Um, but it's also true in personal situations. Like a lot of people on on the weekend, they have a script. You know, the Saturday works about the same way. You wake up about the same time. You eat about the same kind of breakfast. You do about the same things. And the point we make is that when you have a script almost by definition, it becomes less memorable over time because you're just repeating a routine. You're just repeating a habit. And so there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing sticky about that. There's nothing that you're going to recall months later. And so often the best way to create something memorable is to break a script. And so these Ritz-Carlton staffers, you know, what was the script in the situation? It's probably, you know, someone would have found the giraffe, and if you're lucky, they would have stuffed it in a box and sent it back. Like, you know, that's probably a normal hotel. And by going so over the top with this whole photo album of vacation photos, they broke the script. Um, but, but more broadly for all of us, in, in, in both our businesses and in our personal lives, we should be looking for opportunities to break the script and disrupt what people expect. Yeah. What's nice about that, too, is the giraffe was left in the hotel by the parents, right? So it wasn't the fault of the of the hotel. And particularly in hospitality, um, there are a lot of instances where people might have a complaint, right? So there was something, some sort of service failure. And in the book, you mentioned that those are moments, you call them pits, right? So they're moments, they're lows. And there's a statistic that I thought was really fascinating you note that 25% of positive encounters with businesses were actually service failures that the company responded to. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, exactly right. So this is, this is fascinating research on what's called service recovery, which is, you know, how do you respond when something goes wrong for the people you serve? And so, uh, you know, Joshi is a, is a, well, Joshi is not a great example of that because that was the parents' fault, as you said. Right, but, it's the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, in many situations where where businesses really distinguish themselves is is how they deal with the miscues and and the mistakes. Um, I'm trying to think of a of a recent example that I've had where uh, where someone just went above and beyond. Um, I had a uh, I always go to this coffee shop uh, that's near me. And in this one morning, I swear I'm not making this up. I always order the oatmeal. And in the oatmeal, as I was, you know, moving my spoon around to get a bite, I heard a clink. 
And and so, you know, there's not usually a clink in my oatmeal in my experience. Oh, no. I really am scared. What do you <laughs> find in your oatmeal? And so I found in the oatmeal, I swear to you, it was like a four-inch long nail. No. Four inches long. I mean, it wasn't just a, a tack or something. It was like a huge nail. And so I went up to the counter, and, of course, I'd made friends with them by this point, and I was like, I don't think this is supposed to be in here. And they were just, of course, o- over the moon and, you know, horrified and apologized. And they did like a whole uh, uh, process inquiry to see like what had happened in the kitchen and studied things. And they gave me a gift card and they brought me out, you know, a whole elaborate spread for breakfast. And, and you know, when people treat you warmly and when they react to your problems and when they accept your problems as theirs, it's amazing how, how forgiving we can be. Like, I, I didn't, even though this was a crazy thing to have happened, you know, I was there the next day. You know, even a nail in my oatmeal can't keep me away from this place because they treat me like a human being. Yeah. And, you know, the, those pits, too, they happen in people's personal lives. So, I mean, you found a nail in your oatmeal, but um, there are also instances where you might have a life experience um, that's supremely negative or traumatizing. Um, and in the book, you guys talk, there's a few examples where there are opportunities for businesses to reach out to customers when they know they're going through a period, either a transition, a milestone, or one of these pits, and they either respond or don't respond in an appropriate manner. Um, you talk about banks um, giving a mortgage pause, for, int- for instance. Um, you talk about, you know, if there's a loss in the family. So, you know, what are some ways that um, as a business you can be cognizant of people, um, what their needs are, and see the signals and respond in, in the correct way? Well, I think banks are a good example because we've all got experience with banks. You know, if you watch bank advertising on TV, they talk a great game about, you know, customer relationships. And, you know, it's, they, they, they stand by their customer relationships and they fight for their oh, customers. Yeah. Every and, step of the way and oh, all the yeah. images they use. There's yeah. like an elderly couple on the beach dancing. You know, it's, it's the same couple for every, yeah, every bank. Wedding days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you actually look at the way that they manage their side of this relationship, you spot some pretty clear flaws. So uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, you get a mortgage from your bank. And, and probably a lot of us uh, you know, listening right now have, have bought a home. And usually your realtor will bring you a present or something just to celebrate. It's a big deal to buy a home. It's a big deal to move into a home. And meanwhile, the bank that gave you the mortgage that allowed you to buy the home, how do they celebrate that moment? They send you your first mortgage statement, right? And that's it. That's the commemoration. And I think a bank that understood something about relationships would understand, you know, that's a moment that deserves commemorating. You, you send the customer a gift. You send them a thank you. You send them a, a you know, welcome to your home note and some flowers or a gift card to Lowe's or whatever. And similarly... At the end of the experience, so 30 years down the road, when you make your last mortgage payment, the home is finally yours, you take the deed. You know, in a, in a just world that paid attention to moments, what would happen is somebody from the bank would come and knock on your door, they would shake your hand, they would thank you for making those payments over 30 years, they would celebrate you, and they would physically hand you the deed to your home. They'd say, congratulations, this is yours now. Um. And what actually happens in our world my brother and I were um, talking with a bank in Australia, and we gave that example, and one of the people kind of sheepishly raised their hand in the back, and they said, not only do we not do what you just said, even though that makes a lot of sense, what we do is we charge people a deed transfer fee. No, They charge bank people yeah. for taking ownership <laughs> of their homes. And so this is the kind of thing that, that uh, when you start thinking about moments, and if you read some of the things we write about in the book, will just drive you nuts, is, is some of these things are so obvious as worthy of investment that, that even the biggest organizations in the world are getting dead wrong. Yeah. You know, that the bank example you just gave um, brings to mind another element um, that you mentioned in the beginning about pride. Mm-hmm. So that feeling of pride. And, you know, if I don't know, too, it also has a multi-generational effect, because can you imagine if you are, 
you know, a teenager and your parents are, you're living home with your parents and there's a knock on the door and they hand them the deed and they see that moment of pride that their parents have. And then they see who provided that emotion. And it was that bank. You better believe that they're going to have loyalty then to that bank that their parents are using. Cause they'll think maybe one day I'll have that moment of pride. Um, exactly so it's, right. yeah, so I would love to hear more about sort of the ripple effects of, uh, celebrating pride and how pride can create those moments. Well, it's funny. When we, uh, when we started our research, there was one element that we completely ignored, uh, but when we started surveying people about their defining moments, uh, could not have been clearer. So we would ask people, you know, what are the defining moments uh, in your career for the past few years? And we would get these responses that seemed so mundane to us. Um, you know, one of them, I'm just paraphrasing from memory, someone said, uh, my boss commented on what a good job I did organizing the bikes in the back room. And so my first thought when I read that was, wow, that's, I mean, that, that's such a small thing. I can't believe that's like a defining moment uh, from this person's career. And, and then my second thought was, you know, shame on me because I, I'm missing something big here, which is recognition is an absolute um, fundamental principle of defining moments, being recognized by others for a, a talent that we have or for something we've accomplished. Uh, notice that that blends several of those elements we were talking about. You know, it blends pride. It blends connection with another person. It blends insight uh, into ourselves or our work. And so we began immediately to chase, you know, what, what do we know about recognition and what makes it effective? And, and I've come to think of recognition as one of the, the great underutilized powers uh, in organizations. There's some great research where you go talk to employees, or, or actually, let's start with managers. You go to managers and you say, um, how many of you routinely praise your employees for the work they've done? And about 80% of the managers say, yep, we do that. And then you go to their direct reports and you say, what percentage of your managers frequently praise you for the work you do? And 20% of them say, yep, my managers do that. 80% versus wow, 20%. big disconnect. Yeah, yeah, huge disconnect. We call it the recognition gap. And what's, what's so striking about recognition is to the giver of the recognition, it often feels like you're, you're saying something small. You just, you know passing by their desk, you make a comment about something they've done, you, you, you dole out a little bit of praise or say how much you appreciate it. And it seems like, you know, it's something that took you two minutes of your time. But what you may not realize is to the person receiving that compliment, I mean, that's something that may literally stay with them for years. So there's this enormous uh, disjunction between the amount of work it takes to give people recognition and the amount of importance it has to them. Uh, and that's true not yeah. only in the workplace, but also uh, for teachers and students, for parents and kids and, and, and many other relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And those mo those compliments, too, you know, in that example and, and some of the other ones that you um, that you mentioned in the book, they are very specific. Right. So you're not just giving an empty compliment. You're just saying, hey, great job today. <laughs> right? right, right. You notice exactly. that was a very specific thing, right? You know, the, the specifically the way that I organized the bikes. Um, one of the examples you use in the book is with donors choose. So they allow, you know, for donations are directly tied to supplying school supplies. And the kids would write handwritten thank you letters. And they would say, this is what we bought, you know, wow, the kids are thanking me for giving them pencils, right? But you get that layer of this of specificity and that authentic voice. Um, and that, to me, seems much more memorable than a generic compliment that you could hear every day. Yeah. So just to say a few more words about Donors Choose. So your listeners may know Donors Choose. If a teacher needs to buy lab equipment and they have no budget from school, they can go on the site and basically fundraise, crowdsource fundraising for a new set of books or some yoga mats or some lab equipment. And Donors Choose, since the beginning, has had a core value of gratitude to donors and so if you give more than $50 for any project, by default, the kids who benefited from that equipment or those books will send you a set of handwritten notes. And I've gotten a set of these, and, and they're just, they're extraordinary. I mean, just the, the, the smile that it puts on your face to just flip through these notes and the little drawings they do and, and the, the, the way they articulate, you know, why they liked what, what they got and what it did for them is, is certain 
uh, to be a memorable moment. And in fact, they've, they've scaled this up so much that they're now sending over a million individual thank you notes from kids a year. I mean, that's how big this program is. And, and what I want to add about this is all the time, some outsider will come in and talk to the people who administer. They have a whole team that's actually like the thank you, you know, logistics team. And some some wise guy from outside will come in and say, you know, why don't you just scan these and do it by email? It would be so much simpler and it would save you a lot of money. Uh, or, you know, why why not move away from the custom thank yous and just do one per classroom? Or, or what if we just came up with a generic thank you that we could deliver, you know, instantly when people donate online? And, and I think this is a really common phenomenon in the moments we've studied is that something about these memorable moments is ultimately a little bit unreasonable, you know, that... Uh, that it's, it is more reasonable to scan these notes and send them by email. It is cheaper. It probably is more efficient. It, it would be a lot simpler to have one standard thank you that donors get. Uh, but that's not a moment. That's yeah. not something people are going to remember or talk about or cherish. Uh, and so these yeah. moments... And you mentioned hmm. that there's always going to be somebody, there's always going to be somebody who says, well, that's not reasonable. And those are the moment destroyers, <laughs> right? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite stories in the book is about um, a high school in San Mateo, California, a public school called Hillsdale High. And the principal, Jeff Gilbert, had this great quote that stuck with me. He said, you know, nobody would go out for the basketball team if it was just all practice, right? Uh, The reason you play basketball is you want to play games, and you're willing to endure the practice to get to the games. The games are the fun parts. Those are the moments of elevation. But he said, we run schools— like they're nonstop practice. You practice every day. You practice, practice, practice. And you might say, well, final exams are, are the games. And no, they're not. I mean, any student can yeah. tell you and those they're are not, not the those games. those are public. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's Nobody no, can see you and, and celebrate you and cheer you on. Yeah, yeah. that's Exactly different. right. Exactly right. And so at this school, they, they've started trying to live by this philosophy. Like, what if school was more like sports, where there is some practice, but that ultimately there are some games. And, and so they came up with this tradition they called the trial of human nature, which uh, was created by two teachers, one English teacher and one history teacher. And in short, it puts the author, William Golding, who wrote the book Lord of the Flies, which you may remember from school, paints this kind of bleak picture of human nature, like a bunch mm-hmm. of a bunch of boys are marooned on an island and they are very... Are people inherently evil? Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's like, yeah. a, are we all just savages in our, at our core? Uh-huh. Um, and so they put him on trial for libeling human nature. That's the trial. And so the students are asked to play the role of the lawyers, either prosecuting or defending Golding. They are the judge. They play all of the witnesses, and the witnesses have ranged from... You know, Florence Nightingale to Stalin to Darth Vader. It's, it's, it's any character from history or from literature. And they're trying to navigate these really big questions, and they're really questions that link literature and history, which is, what is mankind's true nature? Are we really savages at our core? And, and they put on this trial in front of a jury of administrators and alumni. They conducted in a real California Superior Courtroom. My brother and I went to the one last December. It was the 17th annual trial of human nature. And it was just amazingly cool. It was the kind of thing that I came out thinking every student in the country should have some kind of moment like this yeah. that, that is special. And, and I think so few of us do. We spend the vast majority of our hours in school in the classroom, and yet all of our memories from school are outside the classroom. They're, they're games, they're recitals, or prom, or, or parties, or uh, presentations. And, and why don't we have more peak moments that are about what we're learning? Uh, and, and so return, to, to kind of circle back to where we were, the, the reasonableness police I mean, can't you just hear, you know, some miserly assistant principal uh, trying to whittle this idea down to something more reasonable? You know, well, do we really need to go sure. to a California Superior Courtroom? That's that's expensive to rent all those buses. Or, um, you know, do we really need to have a winning side? You know, shouldn't everybody feel like a winner with this activity? Maybe we don't need a jury. Or do we really need to have costumes for the witnesses? What if a student can't afford the costume? Or uh, on and on and on and on. Um, but I think it's precisely the fact 
that these moments defy the norms and our expectations that makes them special. Yeah. So I would love to, this has been wonderful, and I, I would just love to um, sort of close on, on the last one because it's something that's really close to, to Tony. Um, it's this idea of connection, right? So we have the typical social occasions like weddings, vacations, sporting events where we feel connected to people. Um, but I would love to hear a little bit more about how to purposely create moments of connection um, in a way that you can create binds uh, or create bonds rather, and and in the workplace specifically. So I know you talked a little bit about um, a study that was done that where you ask employees about um, their level of purpose and their level of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, the researcher is a guy named Morton Hansen, and he's got uh, a book coming out where he's going to talk about this in more detail. But basically he's drawing a distinction between purpose and passion. And, and so um, if, if you imagine people that are low in their jobs on bur- both purpose and passion, it won't surprise you to hear that they're pretty poor performers, right? We would expect that. Uh, if you were to hear that people were both high on purpose and on passion, it won't surprise you to hear that they're pretty high performers. Uh, but let's talk about the other case where people are either high on one or the other. They're either high purpose or high passion. And I should say uh, briefly, just to distinguish those terms, uh, passion is really about our excitement level. You know, do we do we enjoy the work we're doing? Do, uh, does it spark a passion in us? And purpose is really about do we think there's broader meaning in our work? Um, you know, uh, Morton Hansen talks about it in terms of uh, are we making a contribution to someone? And, and so it's fascinating to think, well, would it be better in terms of making you a better performer if you were really excited about the work, or would it make you better if you felt like you had more of a purpose, that you were serving someone else? Hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, just make a quick guess as to which one turns out better. What, what Hansen shows is that there's actually no contest, that the people who are high purpose and low passion are far better ranked by their superiors than people who are the opposite, high passion and low purpose. Uh, and, and so his advice is, you know, the obvious, which is, uh, number one, we should pursue work that makes us feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves, that we are um, serving others, you know, whether those others are, are patients or, or customers or, or students. Um, and we should look for the purpose in what we're already doing. You know, this is not just about finding a new job. It's also about thinking carefully about the job you're doing now and maybe getting a little more conscious about the contribution you're already making. Uh, my suspicion is is every single person listening to this, even if you're in a what you feel like is a is a bureaucratic job or a difficult job, I mean, ultimately, you're making a contribution to some specific people. Um, you know, if, if you're... Um, slaving away on marketing collateral every day, you know, the contribution you're making is to the sales force. You're helping them be more effective and more confident uh, in the field. And when you think about your job that way, when you connect it directly to the contribution you're making, it's easier to see how to go above and beyond. Uh, You know, once you're clear on who you're serving and how you're serving them, you start to think of new ways that you might do your job even better rather than just viewing your work as a set of tasks. I do want to say, just, just to kind of wrap this discussion, that, that this is not to not knock passion at all. I mean, clearly the, the best performing people were those who had both purpose and passion. So this is not sure. an anti-passion sermon, but it's just to say, let's not forget the, the central role of purpose. Sure. And I think also, if you're a business owner, right, um, a lot of business owners tend to try to cultivate passion and excitement and so there might be um, you know ways of lifting the energy level in the office for instance or there might be company events or there might be um, moments within meetings where there's a higher level of energy and they get people excited or they you know talk they hire employees specifically who are very passionate Mm -hmm. and that's wonderful but 
that's not to say you should neglect the purpose side. And I think there are a lot of businesses out there that are doing a great job in helping their employees understand what not just their purpose, their role as part of the company, but how that fits into the company at large and then how the company itself, what its purpose is. So I love the fact that it seems really in the past few decades, there's been this movement toward understanding, you know, the company you work for, what is the mission statement? What do they value? Um, And then specifically giving people, giving employees transparency, right? So um, Tony loves the fact that Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, has like on Fridays, he has this all hands and he kind of gives, you know, people transparency into where Facebook is going and why it's going in the direction it's going. Like we're serving our users in this way, but here's why. Um, and it seems like that's something that every industry would benefit from. That's a great example. And, and I think the point you're making is really important, which is this is under our control as leaders, as managers, that we can manage for purpose. Like, like one example um, I came across a few years ago, uh, I was doing some work for a large industrial company, and, and in one of their factories, they, they were trying to push uh, an initiative on waste, reducing waste. And so, you know, they had all of their analytical tools deployed, Six Sigma and what have you. And, and there was a great business case for this. Um, it, it made a lot of logical sense, but they found that people weren't really embracing it. They, they feel like they're having to push a little bit too hard. And, and so what one of the managers of the factory did one day is he, he piled um, some of his uh, leaders in the factory into a van and he drove them out to the landfill where they... Uh, deposited all of their waste after production and there was like a whole wing or 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 you know landscape of of this landfill that was uh, just theirs and he pointed it out to them and he showed them this kind of vast sweep of garbage and and waste and junk uh, and and told them you know this is us uh, this is what we're doing and this is entirely preventable or at least you know 95% preventable and he said that just that little road trip and being able to see and to connect what they were doing in the factory with the ultimate significance of it, it made all the difference in their buy-in for the initiative. And, and that's a great example of a moment of purpose, right? Something that you see, something that you experience that makes the meaning of your work come alive. Sure. It's a moment of insight as well, right? They have an understanding and that, that's memorable in and of itself. Exactly right. This is not just, you know, some manager's pet project. Like, this has real-world meaning. Right. Well, Dan, it has been wonderful hearing all about the power of moments. And everyone listening, the book is out October 3rd, 2017. It's called The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. So it's been wonderful having you on the show. Um, Thanks so much for all of your insights. Anna, thank you. It's been fun. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckheit. Annie Org is our editorial director and occasional host. The podcast is produced by Carrie Song and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Diane Adcock for her creative review. Copyright Robbins Research International.